Hear now the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we need your help this morning to discern spiritual things. Would you give us serious hearts that are really set on knowing you? Would you give us a spiritual taste for the good things that you would do in us through your word here this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we come to a text that is well known. I think it's probably not as well known as the passage we're going to read next week. Uh, people don't generally hold up signs saying John 3.1 at football games. It's, it's not in the G- John 3.16 territory of popularity. But it is a well-known text, even if people don't know the reference, because it introduces us to this term, born again. Now, the term born again itself has evolved, I would suggest, and it has experienced what I would call a transformation over the last 50 years or so, and perhaps even longer than that. Uh, Originally, the term born again, people understood it to mean a transformation by God, a spiritual transformation of the heart by God. And so if you said you were born again, what you meant was, I am a different person than I used to be because the Holy Spirit has done something in my heart. And it used to be that if you said that somebody was born again, that's what you meant. However, what has happened is the language of Christianity has been, has changed. Uh, As evangelicalism began to morph from being a theological movement to being a cultural movement and even a political movement, it is more and more common for folks to call themselves born again almost as a social marker. Um, Because today it's not unusual for someone to call themselves born again as a way of saying they grew up as a Christian, they grew up in a Christian home, they maybe haven't attended church for a very long time, 
but they tend to be conservative when it comes to the way they think about the world and they think about politics. In the 70s, there was a presidential candidate. He was the first presidential candidate when he was running for office, the first one ever to claim that he was born again, at least publicly claim that he was born again, and to make that part of his campaign. Um, And it became expected over time that politicians, political candidates, who wanted the support of Christians and especially evangelicals, that they should use this term born again to refer to themselves. In fact, in the 1980 campaign, all three of the major candidates claimed to be born again. And over time, I I would suggest that the terms born again uh, and a term like evangelical even has become more of a political sign or a political designation than a theological or religious identifier. In fact, about 10 years ago, They took a poll and the poll said that close to 50% of American adults said they were born again. Now, could you imagine what the United States would be like if 50% of the population was born again? And I think what this shows us is that it is not a helpful phrase if we don't understand it rightly. Um, In other words, terms like born again are abused or confused in our own day to the point that they are almost unhelpful. It's almost unhelpful for someone to say that they're born again. And maybe the term becomes misused and overused, maybe even, and it is cynically co-opted, I think, by those who want to manipulate Christians into voting for them, regardless of the state of their own soul. If they say they are born again, it is not difficult to get evangelicals on board. And so the solution, of course, and we can't solve the cultural solution because changing an entire culture takes place one person at a time. But the solution for the church and the solution for us as Christians in dealing with our corrupted terminology that We don't really understand if we use the culture's language anymore. The the answer is for us to follow the term back to its origin, which is this morning's passage. Now, I'm not interested in in talking about politics uh, this morning. My interest in it is simply in the ways that it has taken terms that we use, biblical terms, and twisted them maybe even threatened their meaning so that they lose their meaning when we use them as Christians. How many Americans think they are Christians or born again or evangelical just because they felt like they voted the right way? Um, According to a poll by Ligonier, a large number of those who say they're evangelical or born again don't even attend church regularly. So what we need is to reclaim these phrases, reclaim these ideas, Reclaim the terminology, get back to basics. And that means we need to strip the terms down to their essentials. Let's forget the ways that the term born again is used and abused in our own day. Let's ignore for the moment how people in the culture perceive the term and what they perceive it to mean. Instead, let's look at this man, Nicodemus. Let's look at his question to Jesus and let's look at what Jesus teaches him And teaches us this morning. Because the culture around us does create a fog when it comes to biblical and religious terminology. But the beauty here is 
The scripture gives us clarity. The scripture is like the fan that blows the smoke away so that we can see what there really is here. What is the truth about this term? What does it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus teaches it to us this morning. And as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, I want you to notice how he moves Nicodemus along from the old man to the new birth into a new life. That's our outline for this morning. From the old man to the new birth to the new life. First, we notice that before we can understand the new birth, we have to understand the old man. The old man comes before we're born again. Um, We see the old man addressed here in the passage, and Jesus uses the term flesh to designate the old man. So when the Bible talks about flesh, it uses the the word in a couple of ways. The, The most common, ordinary way that the word flesh gets used is just to talk about our bodies. Um, Sometimes the text is just talking about that part of us that is failing and falling and and mortal. Think about uh, Psalm 73. It says, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Talking about the body. Or Isaiah 40, verse 6. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So we have these these passages that talk about our flesh. They talk about our bodies, these parts of us that that, that are failing, that will fall apart, that we will one day die. Um, It's talking about our bodies. But then on the other hand, the Bible also uses another word. They use the word flesh in another way. Uh, And we start seeing its use here in Jesus's language here. Paul does this as well. Talking about the flesh as this other part of us that battles against the spirit, battles against the spiritual part of us, the the fleshly part of us, the fallen nature, the part of us that hasn't given up yet, hasn't given the ghost up yet. That as long as we're in this life, we're going to be doing battle with the flesh, with our fallen nature, that part that resists God and says no to him and doesn't want God to rule in our lives and in our hearts. And so the flesh in Scripture represents the part of us that resists God, that resists His way, resists His rule, wants to do life on our terms without anyone being sovereign over us. Each of us has that aspect to ourselves. Until Christ returns, takes us to heaven, transforms us into new people, we are going to continue to have that aspect that we're doing battle with. Paul paints a very vivid picture of that battle in Romans 7. And he tells us there that that battle is going to be lifelong. We will always be doing battle with our enemy, the flesh, until God makes us new again at the resurrection. And when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he says that because of this flesh that we all live with, the new birth is necessary. Because we have flesh, or as I'm calling it, the old man, because we have flesh, we must be born again. He says being born again is not optional. It's not like I'm a Christian, but I want to take my Christianity to the next level. So now I need to be born again. That's, that's not it at all. Being born again is a non-optional requirement. If we're sinners and we want to see God's kingdom or if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be born again says Jesus. 
And he tells us why. He says, he says, this is why it's not optional. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And he says that in verse 6. So he uses that phrase to explain something about our natures, what you and I are like. Something that tells us why the new birth is not optional. He says, there is a principle within your heart and my heart that needs to be completely changed. It is a principle that is against God. It's set against his, his rule. It doesn't want to live life God's way. And that's the old man. The old man is the enemy of God, the enemy of health, the enemy of life, the enemy of true, deep, spiritual joy. Now, here's a bit of a hitch. When we think about the sort of person who needs to be born again, who needs to be born again, I think we sometimes can be guilty of thinking of extreme cases, right? People who are like living caricatures of sinfulness. You know, we're guilty or we can be guilty of thinking that it's only the edge cases who need to be born again. You know, the knife wielding drug dealer, the the human trafficker, the the person in prison for, for murder, the abusive Hollywood producer the career criminal, you know, the really bad people. But here's what you've got to see. Nicodemus needs the new birth. And according to Jesus, and he doesn't fit any of these stereotypes. Think about what we can tell about Nicodemus here. He seems to be a good man. He recognizes Jesus. He admires Jesus. He comes back to Jesus after he dies in chapter 19 to help with his burial. Think about what we can discern about Nicodemus just from reading this passage. We can tell that he's a wealthy man. He had enough money to buy 75 pounds of burial spices for Jesus after his death. He's a powerful man. The, the, he, he is called a ruler of the Jews. This is somebody who's a mover and shaker. He has authority. He's a put-together man. right? You don't make somebody whose life is a complete mess into a ruler of your people, right? This is, a, this is somebody who is trusted. He's a religious man. He's a pious man. He's interested in the Lord. He wants to know about the kingdom of God. He's, he's a practicing Jew. He attends the synagogue weekly. Uh, he goes for the sacrifices. He, he participates in the Day of Atonement. He participates in all of the activities of being a Jewish person that would be expected of him. He's a religious man. Think about this. He's an intelligent man. Jesus says in verse 10, Nicodemus is a teacher of the people. It was sort of a technical term in those days. It would be like the equivalent of saying somebody has a PhD, right? If somebody's got a doctorate, that, that person in some ways on some level is like a cultural elite. And that's, that's Nicodemus here. He's, he's a cultural elite in Israel. And if you had met Nicodemus, if you had asked him, how are you doing? He would have told you about perhaps his academic pursuits. Or maybe he would have told you uh, about the sort of exciting things happening in Israel. That if you, if, you, if you just looked around, you'd see that maybe he's even responsible for them. And you would have had a pleasant conversation with this man. And maybe after you walked away, you would have been tempted to say, gee, I wonder if God's going to bring somebody across my path who actually needs to hear the gospel today. That might cross your mind. What do we think that for? We think it because we believe or we may believe 
that being born again is for the dramatic situations where something drastic has to happen, or this person's life is going to be over, and so there needs to be a crisis moment that makes them turn away and change everything. People whose life needs to be veering over a cliff, that's who we are guilty of thinking need to be born again. But Nicodemus is none of those things. He's got it together. He's religious. He's financially independent. He's not a drain on society. You would look at him and say, what a successful man. He doesn't fit any of the stereotypes of what it is to need to be born again. And that tells us two things. The first thing it tells us is we have to put away this idea that there's a such thing as a stereotypical sinner. The idea that only the dramatic conversion stories matter. Uh, This idea that only the really, really rotten, really bad people need the gospel. Nicodemus isn't that. And yet Jesus is adamant, truly, truly is how he talks to Nicodemus. Jesus is adamant that he needs to be born again. As a church, we can believe that even the well-put-together folks need the gospel. Maybe we're good at that. That's part of the message of Nicodemus, but we could be guilty of prioritizing the cleaned-up people, the professional people, the white-collar people, the put-together people, you know, wanting doctors and lawyers to come to our church, you know. But then what do we do? We forget that there are hurting blue-collar folks out there, people whose lives are messed up, people who need the gospel too. Well, those people are going to be extra work. Those people are going to be a drag on us. Those people are going to come with drama in their lives. Yes, they will. They will. And they need the gospel. They need to be born again too. So Jesus says our flesh is the reason we need to be born again. If the flesh is the part of us that pushes back against God, why does he say that which is flesh is flesh? Well, he says that to let us know that if we have a dead nature, the only kind of nature we can produce in our own hearts is also dead. All deadness is going to produce is more deadness. You know, imagine if I tasked you with pushing a 20-foot rope across the room here. You know, pushing a 20-foot rope to the back door. It's, It's like an impossible request. You can't ask the flesh to produce life. You can't ask something to do something that it's not made to do. You can't ask a penguin to fly. Penguins just don't fly. They don't have wings. They don't have the structure for it. They weren't made for it. And the same thing goes for flesh. You can't ask the flesh to do something flesh was never made to do. All it does is produce more flesh. Jesus says we need spiritual life. But that spiritual life, Jesus says, isn't going to come from our flesh. It's not going to come from in here. The rescue, the thing that we need most, is not going to be found within the resources that you and I have. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, he looks at him. And in essence, he says to him, you know, Nicodemus, that you are your own biggest problem. And the answer isn't going to be found by looking into your own heart, Nicodemus. You can look as deep as you want. You can look as long as you want. You won't find anything inside of there that's going to produce life. There is no switch in here that if you just found it, you could flip it. All you're going to find in here is darkness and death. He's pushing back against a man who is almost certainly used to tremendous self-reliance, tremendous self-sufficiency. This is a self-made man. The theme of self-reliance is so 
powerful in our day. This theme of sort of wanting to affirm and build people up so that they believe in themselves and they're happy with themselves. It's such a powerful narrative today. And on one level, you may be a resilient person and someone who has endured a great deal. But at the end of the day, even the things we do that are extraordinary came from outside of us. They, they, they were given to us by God. So look at, look at what Jesus does. He's, he's turning Nicodemus away from Nicodemus. Because the answer isn't more Nicodemus. Yeah, the answer isn't for Nicodemus to look deeper within his own heart so that he can produce liveliness within his own soul because he can't do it. The answer is for the liveliness to come from outside of himself because the old man can't give life, which leads to the second thing that Jesus points Nicodemus to, which is the new birth. Jesus takes Nicodemus to the new birth. He's already shown him his helplessness. He's shown him that he has no resources to minister to the gospel to himself, to to believe in the gospel, to to enter the kingdom of God. He's shown him, he's stripped him of his self-sufficiency, and then he gives him the answer. What is the answer? He tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 5, he goes a little further. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I love this about Jesus, and, uh, and, and I wish that I was better at illustrations. Jesus was just, he was a master of illustrations. He could just take everyday events, things that people saw all the time, And he could make use of those things and show people spiritual truths. And here, he picks something as common as childbirth as his illustration of what God has got to do in our hearts. Now, we've had, uh, in the last couple months, we've had a a child born here. And uh, we have an upcoming birth, Lord willing, very soon. Uh, I know know that she's saying very soon. I want this baby now. Um, But one of the things that that we've learned uh, about having children is that having children is a big deal. Um, It's incredibly difficult to go through pregnancy, of course. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, But the birth itself is painful for the mother. And, of course, many people don't talk about the cost of the mother for the rest of her life. Mamas, you can testify. Your body is not the same as it was before you had babies. Uh, You're just not the same. Having babies comes at a steep personal cost to your body, to your time, and to your wallet. And it's truly life-changing and life-altering. You rearrange your life around the birth of children. And not only that, but being born is something that from the child's perspective, the child has absolutely no control over whatsoever. A child is born whether they want to be born or not. And Jesus picks this as his illustration for what the Spirit has to do to each and every one of our hearts if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. We've got to be born again. Our world, Jesus is saying, our world has to be turned upside down. And when he says this, he's saying several things. One thing he's saying is that all the good deeds you've done before don't count for anything. Whatever happened before you were born does not matter. The only thing that matters after you're born is what's happening now. 
Babies emerge into this world with a brand new, fresh record. They didn't get born because of anything that happened in their past, and now they're starting brand new. We need to think of the new birth like that as well. When you're born again, when you put your faith in Jesus, God really does start you off with a blank slate. There may be consequences for the sin you had before. Um, Very uh, last week, my prison pen pal Michael was released from prison. He was in prison for, I think, 20 years. He got saved while he was in prison. He started, once Christ rescued him, he started with a a new record, a blank slate, no sin. No sin, Uh, as far as God is concerned, there is nothing against this man. And yet the consequences were still there. He still had to do his time. There were still consequences. But when God looked at him, you know what God said to him? He said, not guilty. He may have had a record, but in God's eyes, he didn't. And this is, this is one of the realities uh, is that we get to have a blank slate too, just like the newborn baby has a blank slate. But he's also saying this. He's saying new birth is a radical change for us. Um, there are a lot of examples from, from history of radical conversion. I think Dot gave me a book uh, not too long ago, and it was about a list of different people's conversions uh, and just lists of famous people who came to Christ. And one of the examples in that book is St. Augustine. St. Augustine, in his confessions, talked about the life he lived before. Um, he was a self-confessed sex addict who had a mistress and had a child with her. And after he got saved, he went to the mistress again and she turned him away. She had no interest in him because she couldn't recognize him anymore. She said that he was such a different person that she might as well not have even been with him at all was the response that he received. And so what happened was Augustine's life change in his case was very dramatic. It was his life, his world being turned upside down. To the point that his relationships were ended because they didn't recognize him anymore. That's another thing that Jesus is telling us when he uses this illustration of the new birth. That there's a radical change. Now here's a possible point of confusion, especially the way Jesus talks here. In verse 5 he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this is a strange phrase. Water and the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, one thing to remember is we learned this when we looked at the book of Revelation. Whenever you hear terminology that's strange or a way of speaking that you wouldn't use, oftentimes the solution is to check the cross-references and ask yourself, where did this phrase come from in the first place? And in this case, Jesus is actually using something from the Old Testament here. He's using this idea of being born of the water and the spirit from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 25. And I'm going to read that. You don't have to turn there unless, you're, unless you want to, but I'm going to read from Ezekiel 36, 25, where Jesus takes this teaching you hear about the new birth and he says, that's what God has to do to you. So listen to what he says. God is talking to the people and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Ezekiel writes, he's talking about God doing something to the people, taking out their old heart, their unresponsive heart, their dead heart, their heart of stone, and giving them a new heart, a new way of thinking, a new way of loving God, a new way of responding to God, something they would not have done before, something that would have been alien to them before. And he's promising something that no person can cause in another person. This is something only God can do. In the Greek, this passage's literal language says, born from above. You must be born from above. So even as Jesus says this, he is telling us where this radical new birth comes from. It's not just radical. It's not just a new heart. It actually is a, is a new birth that comes from above. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from within you. The application of today's sermon will not be look inside, look within, look into your own heart. Try to find that. Try to find the thing you need most. You are strong. You are great. You are powerful. You can do it. Just look within. That is, that's, the, that's Satan's message to all of us. God's message is, it doesn't come from us. The new birth doesn't come from the preacher. I can talk, I could preach for 20 hours, but not that you'd want me to do that. I could preach for 20 hours. I could preach the most blistering sermons you've ever heard. I could preach the best sermons you've ever heard. And if the spirit doesn't work, nothing will happen and you'll never respond. It doesn't come from the evangelist. It doesn't come from the book we're studying. It doesn't even actually come out of the text of the Bible. The new birth doesn't. It comes from God's spirit working through those things. And if the spirit's not involved, if the spirit, if we're not born from above, like Jesus says in the text, then we'll never respond. And we'll always just sit there with our stony hearts and we'll never believe. And so we certainly see that being born again is not a political identifier. It isn't a political reality. It is a spiritual reality that takes place in the heart. It's done by God himself from above. Let's just take together the, the various threads of what we've seen and bring it together into sort of one coherent whole. Listen to what Jesus tells us this morning. He tells us that each of us is born with a heart that is turned away from God, turned our own way, and the Bible calls that flesh. Jesus tells us that left to ourselves, we would just have a heart of flesh. We would never love God. We would never follow God. Jesus tells us that when we hear the good news, God does something. He sends his spirit into some hearts. He wakes up the sinner. He breathes life into us. He causes the spirit to, to take our heart of stone and he changes it into a heart of flesh. We know that from the text that when God does that, we become born from above born of water and the spirit. We believe in Christ. We rest in him alone. We love what he loves now. Once that happens, Jesus says, we enter into the kingdom of God. So the whole picture that Jesus paints of real spiritual life is, a, is an experience that leaves us changed. We begin as one person, and then once God works in our hearts, we become a different person with different loves, different priorities, 
and a heart that loves what we used to hate. Now, I don't know how you think of yourself, but Jesus has an application for you, however you do think of yourself. Jesus says, you must be born again. Are you born again? Maybe you struggle with that question. Maybe you wonder, how do I know? What do I look for? What would I be like? How would I be able to tell if I was born again? Charles Spurgeon gives a few evidences that we have the new birth, and there are a lot of them, but here are three. For one thing, he says, do you trust Christ? Do you trust in the gospel? If you've been born again, you will believe and, yes, defend the truth of God's word. Does that mean you'll never have questions? No. Does that mean that you'll never have doubts? No. It doesn't mean that. We find the answers to those doubts, though, and we hunt them down the way a a dog hunts a fox. Another evidence of the new birth is that you repent of sin. Now, notice the language I used there. I did not say sinlessness. Sinlessness isn't evidence of the new birth. Repentance is. God does not demand sinlessness from us in order to save us. The question isn't whether we sin. It is not a question of whether we sin. I sinned this morning. And I suspect each of you sinned this morning as well, even on the way to church, even if you had only a one-minute drive, probably. The question is not whether we sin. The question is, what do we do with our sin? Are we quick to repent when we sin? Do we stand up for ourselves? Do we defend ourselves? Do we blame other people? Do we look at the person next to us that we sinned against? What do we do with our sin? Jesus says we should be repentant people. And a final evidence that's certainly not the only evidence is prayer. Are we praying people? Are we people who take our concerns and cares before God? Are we the one, or do we live as people that depend on him and need him? Um, in Acts, after Paul's heart was changed, the first thing the text tells us is that Paul was in prayer. And don't miss this. The new birth changes us fundamentally. It changes our loves. It changes our life. It changes how we do church. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a man who had uh, been attending his church for a while and then his heart was changed and he was born again and he was talking to one of the elders in the church and this is what he said after being born again. He said, I can't believe how much this church has changed in the last few weeks. The hymns are so lively now. The worship is so wonderfully meaningful. Why, even the preacher's better. Of course, no church changes that quickly. The truth is, God had done something in that man's heart. And that's what made the difference. Before, he he wasn't enthused uh, by the worship. He heard only what he thought were dreary sermons. and, And then after being born again, he saw words of life. Before, these spiritual things seemed dull to him. And now his, he saw life where he saw nothing before. Have you been born again? If you've heard the gospel, if you know the good news that Christ saves sinners and calls us to repent, all it takes is to reach out and believe. Repent of your sin and cry out to God. I don't care if you're a little child, if you're a communing member, if you've been a member for 30 years in this church, whatever your status is, you must be born again. Have you been born again? The good news tells us that the hope for you and the hope for me doesn't come from in here. Thank God. It comes from him. It comes from above. The new birth comes from God. And that means this. The hope and promise 
that all of this rests on him will come true. And he will carry you to the very end. What does Paul tell us? He tells us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that all life and new birth begins with you. We ask that you, together with your Son, would send the Spirit to change the hearts of those who haven't known what it is to be born again. But we also ask for your saints who have known the Lord already, that you would strengthen them through your Spirit, that you would continue that good work that you once began in them, all to the praise of your glory. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.